This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is Steve Gallagher. In November 2019, Steve was serving a life sentence for murder when he confronted the terrorist Usman Khan. Steve had been allowed on day release to attend a Learning Together event near London Bridge. Learning Together was an initiative that brought students and prisoners together and helped change many lives for the better. But on this dreadful day, two young graduates were fatally stabbed. Saskia Jones and Steve's own mentor, Jack Merritt. After his brave actions, Steve was granted a royal pardon, and in August 2021, after 16 years, he was released on parole. When he received the Queen's Gallantry Medal last month, Steve said that his award symbolised change, that you can make great mistakes, but still work hard and do something useful with your life. After studying diligently while in prison, Steve's now written a book. He says that he wants to contribute something constructive to a public debate. That seems stuck in its approach to keeping people safe and dealing with those who commit crime. Please do note that there will be some strong language and some descriptions of violence. So be prepared. Steve, you were born and bred in Hull. And you write in your book that violence and aggression were present throughout your youth. What kind of trouble did you get into and how did it inform your teens? Hull is a northern city, typical working class background. And I remember life being quite poor uh, when, I, when I was younger. And I guess out and about on the streets, there was a lot of crime. There was drugs. There was all sorts of things that you could easily slip into uh, as a child who, like me, had a very low concentration level. And inside the home as well, my home life was quite rough too. I had a stepfather who 
who used to um, deal with me by using violence and stuff like that and often give you a slap and a kick and mm. a punch. And that was quite normal in my household. So yeah, those ideas about using violence to resolve issues, which was sort of knocked into me a little bit, was taken to the streets by me and then because the streets were quite a tough place to be, there was nothing to sort of counter that. So it just continued into the streets with like-minded youths. Were you the only child in the house? No, I've got a, an older brother. He was 18 months older than me. But unlike me, he was quite well-behaved, actually, considering. Have you ever tried to analyse why that was? I have, yeah. And I actually analyse that in the book, funny enough. I do talk about you know me taking on these ideas about violence because I was subject to violence in the house and then on the streets as well. And I talk about, you know, social influences and stuff like that. But yet, my brother, he didn't end up with the same values about violence as me. So I do look at that and try to understand wh why that was. I mean, of course, I don't ultimately know, but I do try to analyse it. Yeah, definitely. But what kind of trouble did that get you into in your teens? Well, I started, I just took on the ideas of, of other street kids. And, and you know, it was fun to go fighting over children on other estates. So there'd be other kids who would come onto our states looking for trouble and, and sometimes we'd venture on other states looking for trouble. I mean, there was no real ultimate reason behind it. It just seemed like fun and risky at the time. And even though we were quite scared running onto other states or fearful of other kids coming after us, we just engaged in that sort of behaviour. And then because I never had no money, it was a natural thing for me to go shoplifting locally to try and get the goods that, I, you know, everybody still else seemed to have, but I never had, you know. So there was shoplifting... Then it went into pinching cars and stuff like that. And it just grew from there. All that sort of delinquent stuff became a normal feature of my life. Could you say that perhaps poverty in your community contributed to it? I think, yeah, it contributed, definitely. I mean, not every every kid was into crime. So there were kids in my area who were also living, I guess, in poverty to some extent, but never got involved in crime. And that's the unusual thing about this. I, Not everybody does, so that's why particularly in the book, as I, I look deeper at other possibilities within me, which made me more susceptible to those types of social influences. Did you have both parents in the house? My dad left when I was about two, three years old, my, my real dad. That must have been a factor. I think so, yeah, because my dad's voice was enough for me to stand in line. So if my dad shouted at me, I would stand in line. But when he was gone, that voice had left the household and it was just left to my mother to discipline us. And even though my dad didn't even have to hit me, just by saying something, you know, shouting at me or telling me off, I would behave myself. So once he left, that was gone. What happened to your education? Funny enough, I did get almost to the end of my schooling days, but I didn't concentrate as much as what I probably could have done in class. So I didn't absorb all that information which has been passed on to me <laughs> for the years of schooling, unfortunately. In 2005, you were given a life sentence for murder. Mm -hmm. You never intended to kill Barry Jackson, but... The jury decided that it was a premeditated assault with the intention of causing serious bodily harm. Can you explain the mind that led you to confront him outside the pub? Well, I guess my motive for confronting him, if I can call it that, was my allegation that, that he had attacked my partner in my home with a hammer alongside other people. And I believe that at the time, although it wasn't proven in a court of law, I believe that he had been involved in that attack. So I, wasn't, I didn't necessarily set about to look for him. My partner had called the police. But nine days later, he's still not being arrested, even though he was known locally for engaging in violence towards, towards females. Nine days later, I'm out having a drink with my friends. I've been out all weekend, actually. 
I've been out on the, the the Friday, the Saturday, Sunday. That was my lifestyle at the time. Always out drinking with my friends. And it was a Sunday evening. It was late. It got to about 10 o'clock. And my friend had asked me to go to this particular pub for last orders. And I joined him. And when I got to the pub, there was a friend of mine stood outside who knew about my allegation against Barry and the potential attack. And he said, he's in there. And in that moment, I just, I didn't even think about the consequences. I just thought, well, I'll wait outside and I'll confront him. I was drunk. My friends were there. There was nothing really to constrain my thoughts about confronting who I believed had attacked my partner. So I waited. Friends were called and they all came around. And I approached him once he came out of the pub and subjected him to violence. I think underlying that, underlying the psychology of that was this idea that it's okay or it's acceptable to use violence to resolve issues. Those beliefs that were instilled in me throughout my youth, through my stepfather, through other people on the streets. Because as I look back later on, um, I think it's normal to be concerned and upset and want to take some type of revenge or seek justice. If somebody walks into your house and attacks your kin, it's a normal thing to want to do. But how we resolve that, that's where we differentiate. Where some people would have called the police and waited for the police to deal with it, I didn't. I then took the law into my hands and approached Barry and subjected him to violence, which ultimately led to his death. I never thought of how as a violent place, but from what you say, it suggests it was quite a violent place. When I look back, it was. I mean, I, I speak to my brother about this. We was we, Violence was always very close by when we were kids. And it's a very friendly city too. You know, a lot of the northern cities are really friendly, but there's an undercurrent of toughness which sometimes develops into violence. And I remember it always being present. There was always bullies around. It was just, it seemed to be a normal thing. And you sort of take it for granted when you're a child. It's, it becomes normal because you don't know any different. You don't know any better. So I, there was, yeah, definitely was a lot of violence around. And it was in the home, and it was in the streets, and it was everywhere. And it was in the towns, in the city, in the city centre as well. I used to go drinking with my friends, pubs and clubs and stuff like that. You always had to be on guard. It took you time to understand your actions that day, and we'll get into that later, but even though you'd hoped to be convicted of manslaughter and not murder, you agreed with the judge's closing statement. There was some acceptance. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, those remarks, you know, nobody has the right to die in the way that that man did on that night. I, I cannot, cannot deny that. And I believe that now, and I, you know, I do believe that I was completely wrong to take the law into my own hands and use violence. And, and you know, if you had a, a world where people took the law into their own hands, it would be a complete mess. So on principle, I'm fully against that. And I think it was right that I was sent to prison for a very long time because of my actions. You think now, but did you think then? At the time... Self-preservation is a powerful thing, John. You know, um, when you're staring down the barrel of a gun like that, I mean, a life sentence, it means that you could literally stay in prison for the rest of your life. You could die in prison. And to walk into that and go, yes, just, just throw it at me, you know, it, it's, it's not natural to do that. So, of course, I wanted to lessen the impact of that. And if I could get a manslaughter, then great. You know, I'll, I'll do some time for it. I upset responsibility for taking his life. But a life sentence is just a step into a... You're stepping into a different world. As it happened, I, I received a life sentence anyway and dealt with it. But at the time, yeah, it was it was a scary thought to think that I was going to go to prison potentially for the rest of my life. What was it like when you first entered Franklin Prison? Well, I did stories about Franklin before I got there, and I it's knew... It's a Category A prison. Yeah, yeah, Franklin is Category A prison. It holds some of the most dangerous men 
in the country. And are they all sizing you up? Well, that's the impression you get when you walk in. I wasn't from a criminal gang as such, although I'd committed a very serious offence. I was working at the time, and I was living largely as a law-abiding citizen, except for the fact that I was going out and you know getting to the odd fight. But I was, you know, working, paying my taxes, and I'd been like that for a long time. The previous time I'd been to prison was when I was a, a youth, a young offender, about 11 years earlier. So it was still a relatively fresh experience for me, and I knew there was some very serious people in those places. So it wasn't the best experience, but I just thought to myself, you've created a problem for yourself, but only you can deal with it. So I just walked onto that wing and, and got on with it, because you can't run and hide. You've got to face it. It's interesting because you quickly decided that you wouldn't use violence to resolve any issues in prison. But how pervasive was the violence in there? When I first got to Franklin, it was relatively relaxed, relatively calm, which struck me. I soon realised that calmness was almost part of the perception of the place because I think there's so many dangerous people in there. What I found was that People don't walk around with their chest out, thinking they're tough and shouting things. They keep it relatively quiet and to themselves until something goes off. When it goes off, that's when you see that the raw violence come out. It's calm, it's relaxed, but then suddenly, bang, it just goes off, and then you see, actually, wow, this place is violent. Even before you were sentenced, you set about educating yourself, researching the law. What was your level of education when you entered the prison system? I could read the Sun newspaper, but a 10-year-old can read the Sun newspaper. <laughs> It was very basic, but I could read a book and grasp the fundamentals. There was a book that I read actually once called God Is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens, and I read that quite early on in my prison sentence, and I found it a fascinating book, but I needed a dictionary. You know, every so often I was pulling out a dictionary, and I read it again a few years later, and I didn't need a dictionary at all, so that was showed to the extent to which I'd grown. So I could read, but it was to a quite low level, and in terms of my writing, I wouldn't use full stops or capital letters, so I could string a sentence together, but I wouldn't differentiate between there, there, and there. You know, It was quite poor. So I realised when I was communicating with lawyers to build up a defence, I realised how poor my writing was and how much of a barrier that would be. So I started to write and understand the English language a bit better, which then got me a bit of a taste for it and a bit of a love for it. What qualifications, if any, did you get? I ended up with GCSE, English, Information Communication Technology. I got an A in that. And then I did. I started doing a level of philosophy, but I moved to another prison, so I never completed that. By the time I got to the end of my sentence, I was studying with Open University for a business degree, business and management. I think going back to my childhood again, I think I, I think I was suffering from some form of attention deficit. Mm. It wasn't fully recognised at the time. When I look back, I remember sat in class and saying to myself, "Just listen to what the teacher's telling you. Just listen. You know, try and concentrate." And by the time the teacher had finished their sentence, I'd not kept track of it. And yet I'd noticed all the other kids in the class like had their heads down and writing. And I I felt powerless to do anything about it. It was clear to me that my attention, my ability to concentrate when someone's speaking was almost non-existent. So therefore, I accepted that. I thought, I'm never going to make this and moved into areas where I could seek more attention. And that was with other like-minded children. You began to want to hold office, as it were, in prison. I mean, you want to make yeah. some kind of contribution. Yeah. And you uh -huh. stood for the prison council, for example. Yeah. How important was it to have this voice and, and the insight into what it was like for the staff? Well, I'd been doing education for the previous four to six years by the time the council came up, and I thought, OK, I've been stuck in education classes. 
learning and learning and learning. Now I've got to put it into practice because you can learn as much as you want theoretically. Uh, but yeah, there comes a time where you've got to practice it and get the real experience. So the council was a great opportunity for me to put myself forward. Um, I was very nervous. You know, I had to go to a hustings. I had to write a manifesto, just like you do in, a, in, the, in the community and get voted in by my peers. So I was standing up there reading this manifesto. I was quite nervous because I'd not done that before. I wasn't a great communicator. So it was a new experience. So I knew, but only by just throwing myself into that deep end would I truly learn something. So yeah, I put myself forward and I was voted on by, I think about 150 of my peers. And the prison only contains you know, 700 men. So it was quite a, a big vote. Mm, mm. And yeah, so I got on and I was able to start engaging with staff, start engaging with governors, attending meetings and, and starting to learn what it's like to communicate in a more formal way. But you were in prison at a time of austerity when the Justice Secretary had cut the staff. What impact did that have on the prison environment? It was huge. Uh, but one of the biggest and most prominent to me was when staff were cut, that is staff who had been in the system for many, many years and knew how to manage prisoners, they knew how to run a prison. A lot of them were removed from the system. And there was a, a, a cut rate contract which was brought in for new staff members, but not only did that, did that fail to materialise fully, it meant that there was less experienced staff to pass on their experiences to those new members. Either way, there was a massive sudden drop in the numbers of staff on the landings. And as I say in my book, at the time, there was a lot of trouble in the system, and particularly in the Cat Air prisons, a, a sort of turf war between Muslim prisoners, not all Muslim prisoners, but a particular type of Muslim prisoner who isn't extremism, and another group of prisoners, mainly made up of white prisoners. And some of that started to filter through into the Cat B system because sentences at that time were getting, getting longer and more frequent. So by the time they started to filter through, at the same time, there was a, a drop in staff numbers. But with those guys coming through, there was gang members, there was sale of drugs, there was a lot more violence. So effectively, it created a bit of a power vacuum, which was filled by some of these violent individuals. And overnight, you just saw that the conditions and the prison environment massively deteriorate. People were getting hurt, more people were taking drugs. It has like a self-fulfilling sort of prophecy. It just creates more and more problems. And ultimately, it just had a huge impact on the rehabilitation of prisoners. So you never came across officers who wanted to know how you saw things? Well, I mean, the council was a really good way to do that. You know, the governor at the time was brilliant and he understood that to really get an handle of what's going on the ground. You want to be speaking to prisoners. I think staff in general, especially when they're reducing numbers and, and you know, it's, it's difficult for them just to manage, the, you know, just to get through the day, let alone sit down and speak to you about situations. I think the lack of resources and, and, and what, you know, for Chris Grayling, and, you know, and, and the benchmarking programme, I think mm. it just, yeah, it made it even more difficult for staff to engage with prisoners just on a normal level, let alone get through the day. You worked through the system, moving through... Uh, lower category prisons towards parole and getting parole is not a doddle no uh, how important was it to have this focus whilst you were in prison did it keep you straight i think it did i think it gave me some structure and something to aim towards because i'd never really had that in life so coming to prison getting lifed off realizing how horrendous it was how many mistakes i've made and having this thing hanging over me that I might not get out again if I don't toe the line made me really focus on 
this potential end goal. And of course, the light was very, very far away, but I was determined to get to it. And I thought, if, if I want to get to it, how am I going to get there? So that's when I broke it down. I thought, well, one thing I've got to do is stop being violent. You know, another thing is educate myself. And so I did, I started to put these things in place. And then slowly but surely, I started to reap the benefits of those decisions. I've got something going on inside me, you know. Prison works. <laughs> I mean, in the but, sense yeah. that you were finding ways to use what was good about prison. And there are one or two good things, as you've spelt out. It was. Prison can work. There's no two ways about that. And that's why I say to people now in prison, use it. Hmm. You know, this is the biggest opportunity you will have in your life to take stock of your life and do something about it, the biggest possible. But not everybody has that perception or that angle on prison. That's the problem. I went through the prison system when it was at its worst. The conditions were really bad. And I still got through it and I got through it successfully. Yet I still did it. Because I think the majority of it comes down to you. If you don't want to change, nothing can change yet. So it's got to come down to you first. You know, you've got to want it. You've got to want to change. You've got to want to chase the right things. And I'm not the only one, by the way. I know hundreds of lifers who've, who've successfully got through the prison system and are out now and they've reintegrated and they're getting on with their lives. You don't really hear about those stories because they're not, they're not as exciting. They're not as contentious. But yes, prison can work. However, I do think the system sh should make that process easier. But currently it's not. It's making it harder. You write about desistance in your book. Mm. Can you explain how this differs from simple rehabilitation? Desistance is something that comes from within. It's something that you do, you make a decision to drive towards, to, I guess, resist engaging in the behaviours which brought you to prison in the first place or which or whatever caused you any problems. So it's, it's something that comes from within, whereas rehabilitation is something external. It's sort of done to you by the prison system. You were lucky in a sense because you reached somewhere called Warren Hill Prison, a progressive prison that, uh, well, initiated the functions of an open prison. Yes. Because of the way I was behaving in the system, because of the way I was networking and I was becoming trusted not only by staff but also by other prisoners, you have a network of lifers who know who's who and know who to trust. So when one lifer goes to a prison which is really decent... He'll say, let so-and-so know that there's a really good prison here because he won't want anyone else to turn up. He wants someone to turn up who he knows is settled and is going to create a decent environment around them, not be a risk to them. So it's like a hidden world of networkers. And because I was well-known and well-integrated and well-trusted, people were saying to me, Steve, there's a decent prison here. Now, that wasn't automatic that I would go to that prison. I started to get there. And it was a little problem because they changed the sort of criteria at the time. But I was just by one fortunate interaction with another prisoner who told me that he was going to go to that prison that day whilst he was walking through the prison. He said, Steve, don't tell no one, but I'm going to go to Warren Hill. I said, are you really? I said, how would you get there? He said, I don't know. He said, I've just been told I'm going. So I knocked on my probation officer's door. I said, he's going to Warren Hill. Can I go? He said, Let, give me a minute. Anyway, come back five minutes later. He said, yeah, you can go. So suddenly, there I was off to Warren Hill. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow. And we'll be right back after this. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You had to wait an awfully long time to get into the violence reduction program. Mm -hmm. But it had a very big impact on you. Can you tell me how you benefited from the psychological support, which presumably you'd never had before? No, I mean, I, I had been on courses throughout my sentence. There was one called Enhanced Thinking, but that's quite low level. There's another one called Calm, which deals with emotions like anger. So mm. you get to understand your emotions and where they come from and how to address them. So knowing what an emotion is, recognizing that emotion, and then how do you deal with it? For example, it might be something like self-talk. You know, you've got a situation, you've got a problem, and you might tell yourself, look, it's not a problem. Well, let's come back tomorrow and deal with it. So that's self-talk. So some really good skills coming through there from these programs. The VIP was slightly different, although there was some skill development and skills use within that. One of the key things that I took from the VIP was when they'd asked me to write an account of my youth and talk about you know, who I was, what my upbringing was about, and it's to try and identify where those poor beliefs about violence, where those social influences, those negative social influences came from. And it was breaking that down and understanding that, which was really, really useful for me because I was able to look back, John, at that key moment before I approached Barry Jackson and used violence. I was able to really understand how, why I made that decision, how it came about, because it, it wasn't just related to that moment before, it was related to my youth and all my experiences coming up to that point. And I learned that through the VIP. While at Warren Hill, you also became involved with Learning Together. Can you tell me about this initiative? So Learning Together was a project ran from Cambridge University by two Cambridge University academics, and they would go into prisons, and their aim was to educate prisoners, not to rehabilitate, but to educate. And as we know from education, it's, education itself is good for rehabilitation, but the aim was to, to educate prisoners. And they did that by bringing in cohorts of students from university to work alongside prisoners and just do things like, I don't know, um, create legal advice guides, just getting people together from different walks of life and just producing something positive and learning from that and growing from that and networking too. Learning Together introduced you to Jack Merritt. Can you tell me about him, the values that he held and demonstrated in his interactions with you? Well, Jack was amazing. He was just one of these chaps, particularly given he was very young when I first met him, 23 years old. He was kind, clever, smart, but he cared. And he had this amazing ability to, to make people feel valued. Even people in prison, you know, people who have committed some serious offences and rejected by society. I mean, when someone's that bright and clever and articulate, mm. I mean, I noticed that in Ruth Armstrong and, and Emma Ludlow, who were the, the two academics who were running Learn Together. Mm. Um, and it's captivating for someone like me who's interested in learning and meeting new people. And, I mean, myself and other prisoners so Learn Together is a great opportunity for us to take some of our education and our networking to a new level. In November 2019, when you went to the Learning Together event in Fishmongers Hall, how long had you been in prison? What was it like to be 
suddenly in central London. It was amazing. I was in a prison called HMP Spring Hill, an open prison. But although it's an open prison, it's, it's spread out across a bit of land and it's like chalets which hold about 20 men in each. And some of the, the wash facilities in that place and the showers and stuff like that are just disgusting. Mm. You know, they really are like this big yellow stains at the wall. You don't go in there barefooted. You have to wear flip-flops and, and, and you don't touch the side. It's just so dirty and gross. And then to suddenly on this first day out of prison, from that, find myself in Fishmonger's Hall, this beautiful, elegant building. <laughs> and all these wonderful people from Cambridge and these academics from all over the place who I'd come to know by that time, in the centre of London, the contrast was was massive, you know, it was huge. It wasn't lost on me, of course, because of where I'd just been all those years. So it was just an amazing feeling for me to be in that space after all of that. But there you are in this space, in Fishmonger's Hall. You hear screams. You're told to stay inside the hall. You instead jump up, go through the door. Did you pause to think, or was your reaction immediate, instinctual? When I first heard the screams... I wasn't sure what it was, but over the, the next minute or so, uh, my my escort, the escort who, who brought me there that day, the prison officer, he jumped up, he said, stay there. He said, you stay there. And he went to go investigate. And um, so I, I was under orders to stay put. I didn't want to breach my license conditions because that was my first day out. I thought if I make a mistake here and jump up, I could get brought back to prison and not get out again, not get this opportunity again. So I had this sort of internal constraint working away. But as these screams continued, I thought, shall I go, shall I go? And then Amy Ludlow from Lane Together came rushing into the room. And she said, everybody stay there. It's Usman. And she was pressing her, the numbers on her phone. I thought, clearly this Usman, whoever he is, is responsible for these screams. So I just said to myself, fuck it. I just jumped up and I, I made my way towards the door, made my way downstairs. And as I got to the bottom of the stairs, I saw who I now know was Saskia Jones laid on the floor with blood coming from her neck. And the officer who was with me holding her neck and trying to stop the flow of that blood. I then saw another lady a little bit further away in a, a fetal position with lots of blood underneath her. She looked unconscious, possibly dead. And then I look up and I see, oh, I now know his husband can, stood there with two very large knives strapped to both hands and facing me. My God. And? I didn't hesitate. I didn't hesitate one bit. I just immediately thought, I'm going to stop you by any means possible. And I did that. How did you stop him? Well... He was armed, you weren't. He was, but there was a chunk of wood right next to me on the floor, so I picked that up, I launched it at him. I mean, the aim was either to, to occupy him until the police come, because it was obvious that the police would come at some point, or take him to the ground and subdue him, hold him until the police come. It wasn't to kill him, it was just to make sure that he couldn't hurt anybody else. And I engaged in that process single-mindedly and until I met my objective. At any point did you fear for your own safety? I mean, you, you, you weren't to know that Usman Khan's explosive belt was fake. No, I didn't, because when I threw that piece of wood at him, he, he opened up his jacket and he showed me the explosive belt strapped around his waist, no doubt to scare me off. But I, I for some reason, I just told myself it was fake. Of course I didn't know, but maybe that was just my mind, my psychology, telling me that so that I could continue engaging with him so i wasn't fazed by it next to next to me was who i now know a chap called darren frost holding out a norwell tusk so i just took it from him 
And then I went in and, and took on Usman Khan in that space, the foyer. And yeah, we fought for a good a good few minutes in that room. Tell me about your first conversation with Darren Frost. The first conversation was, that was my first act of violence in 14 and a half years. Because during you know, the interaction, when we was taking on Usman Khan, there was a couple of things where I'd say, grab his hands. And you know, was, it wasn't really a conversation. It was just, I was just barking mm-hmm. orders. But then when we went back into the building, Darren came up to me and he said, you saved lives there. And I said, you know, by the way, I'm a prisoner. And that was my first act of violence in 14 and a half years because it, it struck me, you know, after I'd walked away from Usman Khan and my adrenaline started to come down and I started to think about who I was and what had just happened. Despite going for the prison, my sentence all for all those years and avoiding violence, despite all the violence that I see in prison system, it struck me that I'd, I'd managed to get all the way to that point. And I didn't like the idea that I'd use violence, by the way. It wasn't comfortable with that. Although I knew it was necessary and right in the circumstance, it still felt very strange to me that I'd actually come across a situation where violence was justified. Did you get support afterwards to help cope with the shock or the grief you felt? Not really, no. Um, I'm one of these guys, I'm, I'm stiff upper lip, you just get on with things. And shortly after Fishmongers All, an opportunity came up for me to to go back to the university. And so it's like going out into the public uh, to university and... You know, I've been in prison for all those years and I didn't want anything to derail that. So I thought, I'm not mm. going to let what's just happened derail this plan which I've had over all those years. I'm just about to get out, you know, and finally get back into the community. So I sort of pushed that down aside and deep into me. And, and don't get me wrong, I was sad. There was a period where for a few weeks I was laid in my cell. I didn't come out and I had some music on. I was just trying to sort of process what had happened. But I had to get back onto things quite quickly. So as soon as I started getting back out to university, it felt like it a really good counterbalance to what had just happened because mm. finally I was able to, you know, explore my freedom and just get back into get back into a bit of normality. But it involved the death of your mentor. I mean, how did that feel, losing him? He was key to your whole progress. Jack came into my life relatively near the end of my sentence. I'd already made some profound changes to my life and, and I was committed to change and doing something with my life at that point. What Jack did was... He gave that additional um, support at the back end and, and, and inspirational support as well because he's such an inspirational person. And what I was seeing with Jack, actually, when people were getting out, he was still interacting with him. The people were meeting him in the community and stuff like that. So I knew that it wasn't just a prison thing. It, it would have been great, you know, to, to finally get out and see Jack in the community. Indeed, I, I did do that on that first day out of prison when I went to Fishmongers Hall, but ultimately ended in his death. So it was it was huge. It was huge. You know, losing Jack, and not just, of course, for me, but for all of the Learning Together team. And I think the future of of the fight to create something much better, you know, than what we already have. Because Jack was part of that, and I I look at it and I think what he would have achieved, what he would have been capable of doing, would have been massive. And it's really sad that we'll never get to see that. So it wasn't just about me losing as a mentor; it was about what could have happened and what you know what he could have produced. So all that was gone and, and destroyed because, as we know, because of what happened at Fishbangers Hall, Learning Together was ultimately disbanded and, and done away with. Mm, well, I mean, to add pain to injury, Cambridge University did halt the Learning Together programme after the coroner criticised its approach to safety. You got so much from it, as you said. So did the conclusion sadden you? Yeah, because I wasn't only a recipient of what Learning Together was doing and I've not only benefited hugely and still now, I'm benefiting, but what it could have achieved. But I also understood 
And I understand that the price that was paid for some of the mistakes that was made is way too high, way too high. I would rather have Jack alive than laid together in existence. And that's, you know, it's never nice to sort of balance together, but Jack, Jack's a human being. Jack was a fantastic human being. So the price is way too high. So I understand that. Um, I can I can certainly understand the victims, the victims' family. So yeah, it's it, it's just sad all around, really, that we've lost Jack and we've lost Len together as well. At that time, before you issued your press statement, were you nervous about becoming part of the story and the possible stigmatization of criminals by the media, however brave their actions? Yeah. So shortly after Fishmongers Hall, my name, by the way, had not gone into the public domain. No one knew about me. So other people have come forward and they said to have interjected during the the attack and stopped us and calm. But my name has stayed out of the press. However, it was circling on social media and some press had been looking for my family to find out whether it was me. So it was inevitable that my name was going to come out at some point. So it was just by luck that I was introduced to a lawyer called Neil Hudgel who offered to support me. And Neil said to me, look, we can do two things. We can either be reactive or we can be proactive. We wait for the, you to come out in the press and we react to that with a statement, if you want to. Or we can be proactive and just release a statement. And then we can control the narrative a little bit. Because as we know, you've not only saved lives, but you've got a background, you've, you know, you've taken a life. And that can be distorted if we're not careful. So we decided to be proactive. And I was very nervous about that point because you never know how it's going to come out. But I released that statement at a certain point, And thankfully, it was well received. Well, tell me about Boris Johnson's statement in Parliament, which your mum played to you over the phone. It became instrumental in moving along your parole process. Yeah, it was for a Prime Minister, a Conservative Prime Minister, to stand up in Parliament and to praise a convicted murderer. I mean, come on, that's something in itself. But for that to be me was obviously an amazing thing, and that would not have happened, of course, if it wasn't for Cal Turner MP, who stood up and, and said, will you not recognise what Steve and others did? So, yeah, it had a, a bigger impact. And it all, the other impact was that, at the time, because I released that statement from prison, the prison authorities didn't like it, so they removed me from the open prison and put me in a closed establishment, a cat being next door. So I was gutted, you know, because I'd mm. taken this massive backward step. I'd not broken any rules. And then later on that day, or the next day, after Boris Johnson had praised me in Parliament, the governor came over very quickly <laughs> and removed me from that prison and put me back into the open prison. Yeah. So it had another really good impact, which was to, to get me back out of that very dark place where I was taken for a few days, which I didn't like. Um, what actually, a great story. I don't think many people have got a redemptive story about Boris Johnson, but that is. Well, that's <laughs> it. And, and you know what? It's funny because what Boris did was he just praised us and that gave it a national level sort of recognition, even despite the London Bridge being nationally recognised anywhere. But it still didn't mean I was going to have any, any time off my sentence. So I set about going for the normal process where you would just apply um, on exceptional circumstances for time off my sentence. And that was slowed down by COVID because COVID, the lockdown had happened, government resources and, and, and attention was shifted elsewhere, and it meant the process was going to be slowed down. And it's a very slow process anyway. So this meant that potentially, by the time I get anything, if I get anything, I'm going to be near the end of my sentence anyway. I mean, I still had two and a half years left, but it's a very long process. So what Kyle Turner did, with the help of John Samuels, Casey, a, a lawyer, in fact, a previous judge who supported me, was my other mentor at the time. They wrote a letter to Boris Johnson, and they said to him, look, you know, you gave a pledge to Cal Turner that you would do all you can to help Steve Gallant 
you know, we hope that you would honour that pledge. Apparently, he'd given Carl his word that he would help. And I'll give him his due. He did. A week later, I was given a royal prerogative of mercy. Wow. That's quick, too, by any standards. Early in your sentence, you asked the prisoned English teacher if she thought it was possible that you might write a book one day, and she said no. <laughs> what does it feel like to have one coming out? Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, well, I've put a lot of effort into it. Look, <laughs> look, I'm not the brainiest person, yeah? For what I lack in intelligence, I make up for in hard work. I've worked really hard on that book, and I know there's going to be some very contentious elements in that book because I talk about my own crime and stuff like that. But I felt, look, writing that book, by the way, for me, it's it's a dark story, but I learned some very, very powerful lessons on that journey, and I'd like to share those lessons with others, and I think you can only really grasp what I've learned and feel what I've learned if you come on that journey with me, and that's why I've had to put some of those darker elements of my book in there. You and Darren Frost are now linked after the events of London Bridge. Can you tell me about the social enterprise you've set up together? Yes, so... This was an idea that Darren put to me. Just to remind us who he was. Darren Frost is the other chap who was on London Bridge with me on that day, and he was holding the, the other Norwell Tusk. Darren actually handed me the Norwell Tusk initially, then ran off to get another one um, and left me to fight on my own. Now I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> and then he followed me out and we chased Usman Khan onto the ground. And Darren was actually the last person to be pulled off Usman Khan by the police. And because of that, experience that we had we realized that you bonded yeah we bonded and we we respected each other so darren came to see me afterwards and he said look i work for the ministry of justice you know we talk about rehabilitation but very rarely do we put our money where our mouth is he said i'd like to do that he said would you like to join me in creating a social enterprise which provides accommodation and employment for prison leavers i said yeah no problem let's do it i still had two and a half years left to say at that point anyway but i agreed you know i thought why not you know why not and then time passed and the idea sort of grew and grew and grew. And now we have a house in Northampton, big enough to hold six people. It's currently got three to four people in there, three to four prison leavers. And it's now up and running. And it's called Own Merit. And Are you part of the staffing? Not as much as Darren on the ground. I'm doing stuff around fundraising. Yeah. Um, so if anybody wants to um, <laughs> contribute, <laughs> any, contribute anything, then, then they're welcome to do so. So what we say is, and this is to do with its name. And we'll provide the resources, we'll provide the support, we'll provide the opportunities, but only by your own merit will you succeed. And this is really important because it's like the prison system. You know, there are resources there, there are opportunities, but only by making tough decisions yourself and putting them into practice and, and, and carrying them through will you succeed. And I think my, my journey reflects that. I mm. took advantage of the, those little bits of opportunities that were around. But own merit, of course, is also a nod to Jack Merritt. Mm. It's not in his name, it's a nod to him because we want what we're doing to also reflect some of what, some of Jack's character, some of his, some of his values. In prison, you were driven by the desire to educate yourself and to move through the system. What purpose drives you now? Uh, the purpose now is just to get enough money so I can buy somewhere to live and, uh -huh. and call it my own and, and, and start a family. Just want the basic normal things in life. And, you know, I've, I've been in prison for, for a lot of years. I'm starting late. And I just want some stability. That's all I want. It's a bit of stability. It's just a nice house. You know, maybe, I don't know, 
eight-bedroom house in the countryside. No, we're joking. <laughs> I just want somewhere nice, somewhere stable. And just in terms of work and commitment, I would love to be able to grow or merit and tenants are somewhat very useful for society and perhaps use some of my knowledge and my experience also to benefit society as well, both in terms of prison, penal reform, but also in a way that I think balances reform and something more progressive with security because I understand that people want to be safe, people want to feel safe and they have a right to. And I think the the current system, it doesn't reform, but nor do I think does it do enough to keep people secure. I think it's doing a poor job on both levels, and which is terrible because you're not doing anything decent to help people reform, but you're not doing anything good enough to, to keep society safe. Could you ever write a book, Prison Could Work? Yes, I could, and that's a good idea. Why not write it? Could it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, that is something people want to know. Yeah. Okay, you have to have some kind of limitation and restriction on somebody who's a threat to society. You do, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, how can you make prison work? And it's a question that's never been answered. I think it's I think it's simple. I don't, I don't think it's rocket science. I mean, it does take a little bit of thought, but it's not. And of course, it's resources. But it's not all resources. It's about taking tough decisions, too, where necessary. For example, I mean, people might not think this of me, but I've been on wings where we've had individuals who are extremely violent and disruptive, and that has a knock-on effect. It starts to impact the rehabilitation of everybody else. I would probably have a prison which deals with the most violent offenders, and I would separate them from the main population so the main population can get on with the key process of growing and rehabilitation. So just something as simple as that. you know, We don't do enough to stop drugs filtering into the prison system. We don't do enough to deal with gangs. I don't think we do enough with our offending behaviour work. I think there's much more we can do there. Do you think if you actually put a whole lot of civil servants and prison leaders up against the wall and said to them, does prison work? Some would say yes, but not often. And others would say no. What would you say? I'd say prison can work, but only with the right approach. I'm not against prison at all. You know, it's you would need somewhere to put people when they're a danger to society, and society, you know, deserves to be protected. But it also deserves to be protected in the long term. Most people who go into prison come out again anyway at some point, and how do you want them to come out? You want them to come out in the best shape possible so that they can reintegrate back into society and even contribute if necessary, and we're not doing enough in that aspect. That's where we need to change things. And if somebody rapped on your door and said, listen, Steve, we'd quite like you to help us and we're running the prisons. I would say, of course. How much are you going to pay me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Steve, it's been really excellent to talk to you and I like your final answer. And it's a pleasure to talk to you as well, John. Thank you very much. And thank you for helping me tell my story. That was the author Steve Gallant. His book is titled The Road to London Bridge, and you'll find a link in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. To get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk or look for Snowcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word tell your friends.
Goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.